0: Artemis are known as the profit hunters for good reason. We seek out profits when conditions are good, when they take a turn for the worse, and when they're downright terrible. For over 20 years, we've been hunting down profits, whatever the economic climate has been like, as we will continue to do. Artemis, the profit hunter, capital at risk.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading industry participants. I'm David Thorpe, Contributing Editor at Asset Allocator and joining me today are Stephen Snowden, Head of Fixed Income at Artemis and Joseph Wilkins, Fund Reporter at Asset Allocator. Today we are discussing the outlook for the bond market and the role that fixed income can play in wider portfolios. This podcast is sponsored by Artemis. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, Stephen, the last time the base rate in the UK was 5% or thereabouts was in 2006. Are there any lessons from that glorious pre-global financial crisis period that we can take to help us now?
0: Uh, well, you know, we have to sort of cast our mind back to what the economic backdrop or conditions were like at the time. Now, while all our views and thoughts and hopes for um, the robust economic backdrop we've been enjoying through two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six, and into two thousand seven didn't persist. Obviously, we had the worst recession in living memory uh, with the financial crisis occurring in two thousand eight. But we, the vast majority of the global population were unaware that we were sailing into a very difficult economic time. But what we did think at the time was that the economic boom that we were enjoying in 2006 and 2007 would persist. And that's why base rates in the UK continued to climb um, 35% as they are today. Now, whether you are you know bullish um, uh, on the UK backdrop, or a little bit morose, um, n- nobody, uh, even if the most um, you know positive forecasters um, looking out for 2024 and 2025 would think that the economic backdrop that we we're going to enjoy is what we thought we were going to enjoy back in 2006, 2007. So the lesson, quite simply this is that the current rate or base rates that the Bank of England have set and the increase to combat inflation, obviously, but they're clearly inconsistent with the economic backdrop or the future economic growth that we're going to, um, you know, enjoy or endure, uh, depending on your view. Um, so I, I think base rates have to fall considerably from where they are, and I think the lesson from history is that you can only sustain base rates in the UK in the modern era over five percent if you think we're looking at a red hot economy uh, and uh, it's anything but that.
2: Um, how confident do you think you can be? In the belief that rates will fall across twenty twenty four, because obviously um, there seems to be a decent chance. But I was just wondering how you approach this uh, this question. Um,
0: I'm very confident, and you know, I'm, and I'm not alone in thinking that. You know, the markets are forever trying to price in um, what's going to happen in the future, and uh, you know, at, as we speak uh, right now, base rates are five and a quarter percent. The market is pricing base rates at the end of this year to be roughly 4.1 percent so just over four 25 um, uh, basis point rate cuts between now and the end of the year so you know the, the global economy or the global market i should say is is expecting rate cuts are not doing one. My own personal view is that they will fall further than that. You uh, know, why am I confident But that? Well well several things. You know, the first of all we have to bear in mind that the economic growth outlook is not robust. That so very restrictive monetary policy is inconsistent with economic stability. So the Bank of England have to bear that in mind. Uh, inflation will mathematically fall considerably. So remember be, you know, inflation is the measure of prices today compared to exactly 12 months ago, and as the high inflation numbers that we witnessed over the last two years subside, mathematically is going to come down. So, what we're looking at is a mathematical certainty that inflation is going to fall considerably, and uh, almost certainty that economic conditions will be modest or mediocre or, or slightly below par. Um, so you know, it's it's a certainty that interest rates are coming down in the UK and the Western world. the debate is simply by
1: how much and how fast and I guess that's that's the the key to the, the confidence question be certainly for the US Stephen the the market was pricing I think like five or six rate cuts this year and and now it's it, it's trimmed that a little bit down to three but as a bond investor, does that matter to you or is it just the overall trajectory that's important?
0: Yes, it matters because you know I I work in a profession where I am measured against um, you know many other fund managers. But I think what's really important uh, when we considering the bond market at the moment is to forget about the nuances. Is it three cuts or is it four cuts? Is it the first cut by May? Is it the first cut by June? Um, and look, at the end of the day, that's what my role is to try to finesse as perfectly as possible. But if we take a step back. We don't want to miss the structural move here which is that base rates will fall considerably this will be you know extremely positive for the fixed income market and probably all asset classes to be fair within reason um and if we get a little bit too nuanced that perhaps one base rate cut is pricing a little bit earlier than it should do and that might lead to you know a slightly better entry point you could sit back and be penny wise and pound stupid over an 18-month, two-year time horizon. And so whenever I'm talking about the bond market, I think people should fret less about the exact timing of the first interest rate cut and think more about the scale of the cuts and the potential upside to the markets over the next 18 months to two
1: years in that backdrop. Thank you. And, I mean, the obvious follow-on question to that is really, in 2022 and and 2021, indeed, and 2023, yourself and your, your peers really what was determining a lot of performance wasn't that individual uh, security selection piece it was it was duration it had a major impact on portfolios but how are you thinking about it right now i know on a previous occasion that we we spoke Stephen, you uh, you had a particular view about where rates would go but your duration position was was slightly different to to what's implied by your by your uh, rates view but but how are you seeing it all now
0: i bullish on bonds, you know, within reason, all flavours of bonds. Uh, that said, there is always a, always a nuance, bits you like better than others. The Western world um, uh, has decided that they have no intention of living within their means. So be it the US, Europe or the UK, we're all running extremely large budget deficits and that requires more borrowing, which is long term ruinous, but short term you know, possible. Um, with that huge supply and government bonds coming through, you know, my my bullishness on the bond market can't be unfettered. I have to be nuanced about it. So, you know, we expect interest rates to come down. I think that'll be good for all bonds of all flavors. But what that should do is lead to steepening of the yield curve. So basically, sh- short-dated bond yields fall considerably further than longer-dated ones. Now, you, you know, because of interest rate risk and duration, you know, mathematically you know you can possibly make more money on longer dated bonds than shorter dated bonds even with a much more modest yield move but what does that all, what am i really trying to say is that we are bullish on the bond market but simply defining your portfolio as having a certain amount of interest rate risk or duration in itself doesn't necessarily refine the best approach to to buying bonds so we favor sort of 10, 15 ten, fifteen-year bonds, and you know, at the moment, we are much more cautious um, on over thirty-year bonds, for example.
1: Thank you, Stephen. And almost as if we'd uh, we'd planned it, the next question touches on your last answer. Um, we have quantitative tightening happening in in uh, in bond markets now. Uh, after a period, of course, of more than a decade, where quantitative easing uh, was. Arguably, the dominant determinant of bond pricing. We now have that being reversed. Maybe economic theory would say that quantitative tightening is supposed to happen when you have much uh, better uh, economic conditions than we than we have now. But at the more granular bond market level, what sort of impact is QT having on the supply and demand dynamics? And obviously, if it's impacting supply and demand dynamics, it's impacting the pricing of bonds.
0: And bonds are just like any other commodity or, or any other product in the world. If there's a lot more of it available for sale, it will price. It'll push prices down. This is like the first, the first lesson you learn um, whenever you start studying economics. So this is simply supply and demand. More of it around is not going to be supportive of pricing. So that's 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 the first thing um, we need to think about. Now it is obviously true that when central banks were prolific in their buying of government bonds um, through the bulk of the previous decade that supported bond markets and pushed yields a lot lower. So by definition, if they're now selling those bonds back into the market via quantitative tightening, that's going to keep yields higher. So where does that impact the most? You know, again, it comes into our view of, you know, base rates coming down. That's very healthy for short-dated bonds. But with this extra supply of bonds, not only because of the budget deficits or politicians run on our behalf because we asked them to do, but with the Bank of England and selling bonds back and the same with other central banks, that's gonna stop yields from rallying as aggressively as they could do. Now you're completely right that quantity uh, quantitative tightening should be deployed during an era of strong economic growth. So it be part of the policy toolbox, you know, higher interest rates and quantitative tightening or selling bonds back to the market role. So uh, dampeners onto economic stimulus. Uh, for central banks around the world uh, and the Bank of England, You know th- their problem is that they were too prolific in their buying of government bonds for a decade. Um, they've given them but their own balance sheets, very little capacity to step back into the market and support the market during a period of, uh, of economic weakness. So they're kind of forced, even though the economic conditions aren't perfect by any stretch, sell bonds back to the market, which is a you know, a, you know a dampening on economic activity. They have to, to give themselves some capacity for a rainier day. So back to that old analogy, you should always be fixing the roof on sunny days. Um, we didn't do that. We continued to buy bonds you know, societally uh, across many different jurisdictions through the previous decade when we absolutely didn't need to. It was helpful, but it wasn't essential. So we didn't fix the roof when the sun was shining. The sun ain't shining anymore, but it isn't raining at the minute, which means you're forced to unwind your balance sheet, give yourself capacity for the rainstorm, which will inevitably come. So that's why we're in this suboptimal situation where central banks, in my opinion, are selling bonds back to the market, even though the economic backdrop is is far from ideal.
2: Um, that's really interesting, Stephen. Is there anywhere, particularly in the developed world, that you see this being more of a problem? Do you see it? as an issue in the UK, the US? Is there places where this has been worse than others across the last 10 years? Are there any regions that you're more concerned about than others?
0: You know, the US has seen the biggest change in terms of um, fiscal stability, but they do have the benefit of it being the reserve currency. Mm. So the US will get away with uh, irresponsible fiscal behaviour for longer. Um, The UK is improving uh, but they have to because nobody ultimately is forced to buy gilts or or, or starting assets unlike the us now we've seen that we I mean we have had a you know a a brief um you know sort of case study of what can happen um if if we don't uh, run the economy um well uh, with the previous prime minister and uh, chancellor exchequer we saw during um, the memory fades, but I think it was October uh, uh, 2022. What can happen if you... Yeah, so so they didn't call it a mini-budget, they called it a fiscal statement, I think, which Mm -hmm. meant that they were allowed to Evade, um the budget of national response. Uh, national res- was it the the budget of national responsibility is that what it's called? Or the the office of national office of budget
1: responsibility. That's the one. office Stephen. of budget uh,
0: responsibility. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I have got Tom tied there. So whenever you call it a fiscal statement rather than a budget, you get to bypass the check and balance that was put in place for a very good reason. So if you if you look back, what happened? So if you get a you know a cut, when in markets lose faith in, you know, you know your economic policy and you're um, putting a horse and cart through due process, which is exactly what happened uh, just over a year ago, you can see the market can react very violently. So we have seen a case study of what can happen uh, whenever bond markets or debt markets are not treated treat with respect. There will come a point where the last straw breaks the camel's back And, you know, when is that moment? What Japan has showed us that, you know, we can run um, very high debt to GDP ratios for a very, very extended period of time. Um, I don't think we'll necessarily get away with that in Europe and the UK, um, but it can go on for a while. I think the markets seem to have got comfortable with the fact that 2024 is an election year, both sides of the Atlantic and they know that no fiscal adjustment will take place. But whoever becomes prime minister uh, in two thousand twenty-five in the UK has some very difficult choices to make because I do not believe that they'd be able to run a large budget deficit um, unadulterated by the bond markets for the entirety of the five years. So I don't think we're the rev limiter is red, but we have seen, you know, a case study in a, from October two thousand twenty-two. What can happen if you are irresponsible? Uh, um so the warning the warning shots are there, but the salvo has yet to be fired when that will happen I don't know. let's pray that there is some degree of um, you know fiscal reality you know it's impossible for society to live beyond its means beyond its means indefinitely and there's many good causes and things that society needs and there's plenty of places we can spend more money. But if you don't have the money, you know, sooner or later, you have to stop spending. So that adjustment will have to be made during the next parliamentary term. Um, that's going to be very difficult for whoever as prime minister. Um, you know, America simply will get away from that for longer. But, you know, the jurisdictions in the world are more vulnerable. There are various places in Europe and the UK would be would be one of those.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Stephen, thanks for that. Um Looking at maybe the, 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 the bond market uh, more broadly, do you find opportunities in, in high yield or indeed find it rewarding to take more credit risk now? We've spoken quite a bit about the duration uh, element of, of a portfolio, but at, how are you thinking about the credit risk uh, side of portfolio? Are the spreads attractive enough in high yield to make it worth your while? Uh, the simple answer is yes, um, I think I've said at the at the
0: very start of this conversation that I think within reason all areas of the bond market are, are attractive and that, that includes high yield and investment grade credit or corporate bonds. Now, credit spreads are not as generous as they have been at various points over the last 18 months or, or, or five years, but I still think they are attractive. You know, why is that? If you go back eighteen, well, 12, 18 months ago, Most people, including myself, um, felt that the global economy in 2023 would struggle, uh, and it didn't. Uh, The UK avoided recession uh, much against the vast majority of people's expectations. So what does that mean for investor positioning? I think a lot of uh, credit investors, be they high yield or be they investment greater corporate bond, really didn't have that much risk on board, fearing a pretty difficult economic backdrop. The economies have proven much more resilient to higher base rates than many would have thought. Um, you know, companies have been um, getting on perfectly fine. What One of the big le- learning lessons, I think, from the financial crisis was that uh, the vast majority of companies, uh, if they default go robust, it's not due to a particularly bad business model or lack of profitability. It's due to a lack of access to liquidity. So the vast majority of companies, now there's, there's always isolated cases where this isn't the case, but the vast majority of companies are fully aware that the best way to run your balance sheet is to have a little bit of debt uh, maturing every year for as long out as possible. Um, and therefore, you don't have any big refinancing hurdles in any one particular year. So, if you get a big market disruption, that's not that problematic, and you you, you can manage the situation. Uh, every tre- uh, corporate treasurer and finance director who are remotely competent have been doing this for more than a decade. So, what we're looking at is term structures um, are very well managed. So, basically, what that means is very little refinance risk. So. Given that liquidity is the biggest reason why companies fall over rather than profitability, the default rates uh, will probably surprise to the downside. Now, think of a backdrop of investors being nervous about the global economy and having been wrong and therefore positioned light in credit risk. Uh, given the fact that companies' liquidity profiles on the whole are, are very strong, um, then you are going to see a much lower default rate than many uh, fear. And as a result, um, with yields being attractive, all in, you know, spreads are one element of that. But the all-in yield of high yield or investment grade corporate bonds is very attractive. That is drawing in um, uh, funds. You know, people are putting money into bond funds. So that weight of money coming in, investors being somewhat under risk. Um, will force the market better. So, despite many people's concerns about the economic backdrop and it mightn't be sparkling, um, the market should go better. The, the best possible economic backdrop for a credit investor isn't growth or neither is a recession, it's mediocrity. Uh, mediocrity means companies don't go bust, but it also means uh, management teams are cautious and therefore unlikely to. Um, you know, do large scale MA activity or, or, or invest. So they don't do anything rash with the balance sheet. Now, that's not necessarily good for the market as a whole or society as a whole or the global economy, but that's the perfect conditions for the credit market. Looking forward, I don't see an economic collapse. Neither do I see a boom. I see economic mediocrity, which is actually the perfect backdrop for fixed income investing.
2: Stephen, we noticed that your um, Artemis uh, fixed income portfolio is quite heavily weighted toward, towards banks and uh, financials. Are you more happy about their risk profiling and liquidity management this time around than perhaps 15 years ago?
0: Uh, well, what we have to bear in mind is that banks and insurance companies are overwhelmingly the largest um, issuers of corporate bonds. So that's why it's the biggest sector within within the fund. Mm. So. But being just being a large portion, of the fund isn't in itself, uh, you know, a a bet on, on positivity. If not now. I need to qualify my own um, argument here because it was proven completely wrong almost, well, ten months ago. So I personally felt that post financial crisis were, you know, sorry, before we go back pre financial crisis, banks typically had, you know pretty, no, lax would be the wrong word, but, um, you know, accommodative risk policies Mm. and they ran with um, low levels of capital. Today, capital levels are five times higher than they were, depending on the bank. Um, Risk controls are much tighter and therefore the likelihood of a bank finding itself in the same distress um, as they did during the financial crisis, to my mind, feels remote. That said, um, Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse have proven that theory quite wrong, um, where you can see that a lack of confidence in the management team or the business model, uh, irrespective of strong capitalization, uh, can lead to essentially a run on the bank and uh, the confidence going very quickly and the bank collapsing. So bank credit spreads have never fully recovered post the financial crisis and what we saw in around you know, about March last year with Silicon Valley Bank on credit Suisse has proven the fact that banks do remain uh, despite their excessive uh, capitalization a riskier place for bond investors to be and therefore the yield or the credit spread you get in banks has proven to be justifiably higher now um, I didn't yeah I've having worked through the financial crisis I saw banks in much deeper trouble um, than than Credit Suisse so I was surprised just how quickly um, that bank ceased to exist so it's a timely reminder to us all that banks are vulnerable um, with a loss of confidence and what we have to bear in mind is you don't have to do like the old days you know, start queuing around the corner of a northern rock branch. Wait until some journalist gets the tube to Holborn to get out with their digital camera, take a photograph. Mm-hmm. Get the tube back to the uh, the office. Get your Try to find the cable that connects your phone, your digital camera to the laptop. Download the photograph and then upload it. I mean, that was all relatively quick, but that might have taken three or four hours um, back in the day. Today, social media... Uh, banking apps on our phone, you can see that um, the runway to collapse has in the digital world or the modern world has just transformed. So uh, what we know about the banking industry, if you're going to panic, well, it's it's always true in the markets, if you're going to panic panic early. And I I said at the time that I felt that the way the Credit Suisse uh, resolution was handled, that I felt it was a great deal for Switzerland and a poor deal for the world. And and I stand by those word, words. The Swiss got a, a Swiss. Swiss had a problem, and they found a Swiss solution. Um, they uh, and you know, yeah, I have my own view about that. But you know what that has meant is that banks are much more vulnerable as a result of the way that was resolved. Um, so I think that we will always need to um, be cautious, you know, to a degree uh, on banking exposure because unlike you know, a classic widget maker, you, you just don't get a run on the makers of the the modern-day equivalent of a DVD player, whatever that case may be, you know, whereas the banking app just has transformed the speed at which a bank can find itself
1: into trouble. Thank you for that, Stephen. Um, and then just as a, as, a, as a final question, really to, I guess, wrap up all of the, the different points you, you've made, what do you think is the biggest risk facing Bond investors
0: in 2024. Uh, well, you know, I, I I think I've given a very bullish backdrop. Mm-hmm. I would say the you know, to my mind, the risks are low. You know, the the, the big risk is um, in my mind that that moment of uh, the bond market uh, becoming. Um, very unhappy with the lack of fiscal discipline shown in, in, in Western economies, um, comes much earlier than, than, than I think it will. And therefore, you end up with a another rerun of the of ball markets falling aggressively, particularly gilts, for example, during Liz Trust's uh, premiership. So, you know, the risk is at some point the ball market's going to say, you know, enough of fiscal irresponsibility you have to live within your means that means less services and higher taxes and the economy you know society is going to have to accept the reality of that whereas the minute we're still in this zone that we there's you know every opposition party in the world will always find money for things whenever they're not in power um so you know that 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 is the big risk to the bond market but you know to my mind, it's remote near term, um, but it is inevitable. We cannot continue to uh, acquire, you know, accumulate debt and assume no consequences. But you know, that's a very, very small risk in my view for two thousand and twenty-four. But it is something that needs to be tackled over the next five or ten-year t- time year, five to okay. ten-year time period.
1: Okay, Stephen, that's great. Thank you very much for that, Stephen Snowden, head of fixed income at Artemis, and of course to our regular contributor. Joe Savwilkins, who is a fund reporter at Asset Allocator. Thank you all for listening, and please do remember to tune in to future editions of the Asset Allocator podcast. Thank you.